Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, my name is Ryan McGee and joining me from Southampton, England, as always, our very own Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how's it going? Pretty good. I did my last bit of curling for the season, so we just wrapped up the Saturday league at Fenton's on Saturday, of course, and uh, closed it out with a big win and won the whole league, so that was good to see. And uh, I'm going to shut her down now till probably August. Another league championship. Yeah, back-to-back. Won it last year and this year, so that's pretty good. Who'd you, who'd you beat in the final this year? Um, the junior team I coach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's not, that's not fair. You're going to have pretty good insight into into how to how to beat them. That is true. Well, so the funny thing is, uh, the rest of my team plus Lisa played them Tuesday because there's also a Tuesday night league, and uh, Lisa Farnell plays basically in my spot on the Tuesday night because I can't make Tuesday night games, and uh, they lost to Joe's team and then we flipped the script when I was there Sk- I was skipping because Greg wasn't around so we flipped the script on Saturday and won uh, the way they break ties at Fenton's is a, a skips draw off and both games went to skips draw offs so my skip Greg actually threw 17 centimeters from the button I heard but Joe covered the pin uh, I'd throw first on Saturday and I threw top eight and I kind of thought, Oh, I left Joe a little window there, but he was a bit heavy on his. So we managed to, to eke it out. So pretty good in the season. Yeah. Nice way to finish up the season. And, uh, those guys have got the junior playdowns in a couple of weeks. So got some good quality games. And so hopefully that'll set them up well for that. I, uh, I actually got to curl on Thursday. I, I got to sub in our league here in Richmond, and it looks like I'll get to sub again this Thursday too. So got to knock the rust off, uh, and I was definitely very rusty. I, I was heavy on just about everything, unfortunately. But we got the win. We took two with Hammer in the first and then didn't have Hammer again for a while. <laughs> got the win. That's good. So stealing a lot of ends. Yeah, we stole like five in a row. That's good. Yeah. And what, what were you playing? Were you playing lead or is it play any position when you sub in that league? Uh, I played second. I think you have to play front end. I know in, in the way we did in Oklahoma was if you subbed, you had to play lead. I think I think ours is you have to play front end. So I played second. All right, that's good. And uh, so you're basically going to try and sub right up until when your baby comes. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. So we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll get at least, well, hopefully this week, and then we'll see after that. It's, it's really any time now. We're, we're past, we're at 37 weeks, and that's kind of considered term. So any, any day now, really. We're, we're excited. Ready. Yeah, excited, nervous the whole bit. We've got the, we have the nursery uh, done. It is, it is sloth-themed. So we're hoping that the kid takes the hint. <laughs> Does that uh, help the kid sleep a bit more? We are literally encouraging one of the seven deadly sins. All right. I like it. Yeah. And, and then uh, on Saturday, some more curling related stuff. I drove down to Triangle Curling Club in Durham uh, in their wonderful facility and did my level one instructor course from the USCA. So that was that was a lot of fun. It was it was very educational. I found out a lot of things I didn't know I didn't know. So it was good. So what was the most surprising thing that you picked up on the course? The most surprising thing? Man, I don't know. Um, I'd say from a psycholo- the psychological standpoint stuff as far as you know how to teach people, I kind of knew going in. But it's kind of... It was good to learn the way that the USCA wants you to like break down the steps to learning the delivery. You know, we our our goal at our Lunda curls is often to just get them throwing full length throws as soon as possible. But if you doing it the USCA's way, you're adding a couple more steps, and I think it, it probably makes it easier for people because the first time you have them get in the hack, you don't have them do anything other than just get in the hack and crouch down. Like that's one of the, that's one of the building blocks that the USCA does that we kind of skip over when we do ours. 
Yeah. I mean, it depends how much time you have too. And uh, I guess what the goals are, right? Yeah. And for our, for ours, it's really get people their money's worth and have them throwing full length throws. Yeah. So that's good. Yep. But yeah, it was good. So a few more things to do to actually get my certification. And then hopefully next year I can try to find a level two course that I can drive to and take. So when are you going to get to apply your level one insight? Do you have any more learn to curl scheduled at the curling club? That's the thing is we don't have any more scheduled. I have to get from the time that I took the course, I have to get five hours in order to be officially certified level one instructor. Um, But I don't know when that's going to happen because we don't have any scheduled right now. Also the whole, the whole kid thing is going (laughs) to, is going to affect that as well. Affect the, the amount of time you can give to running the learn to curls. Yeah, pretty much. Although I, yeah. I imagine I'll be able to get away to do learn to curls. I'm, I, Aaron gives me a lot of leeway with with doing that. That's good. Yep. But yeah, it's uh, I highly recommend anyone who loves this sport and cares about the growth of this sport uh, go do your level one instructor certification. It's it, it's it's really educational. It's a really good program. It's about half in the classroom and half on the ice, so it's good. Yeah, and there's always need for coaches all the time. So if you do it, you will be put to use by your curling club, I'm sure. Oh yeah, and uh, if you're and if you're not volunteering at your club's learn to curls, what's wrong with you? You're a bad person, basically. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess we're kind of getting to the end of the season, and uh, I don't, I'm not sure how many more podcasts we're going to be able to do because uh, obviously yeah. one big factor is uh, <laughs> the impending birth of your child. So yeah. we might we might have a, a guest host at some point if if I'm just not able to to spend some time between now and the end of the season because we still have. We still have events all the way through almost the middle of May with the Curling World Cup Grand Final. Although that'll be good because that'll be, I will be right at the infant stage. And with those games being in China, I'll have something to watch when I wake up at three in the morning to, to put the kid back to bed. Yeah. So yeah, maybe you'll get a lot of watching it or maybe not. I'm betting on the not, but yeah, we'll I know. <laughs> so yeah this might i'm not sure if this will be our last pod but we're, we're probably running down to what one or two more episodes for the rest of the season i'd say yeah we'll so, try to, we, we at least want to get a year in review show done in addition to this one but hopefully a couple more yeah and i think um since we were both pretty busy this weekend, neither of us really had any time to watch the Players' Championship. And to be honest, I was going to come home and try and catch some of it. But then my phone called me Tiger was, you know, pretty close to leading the Masters in the back nine. So mm-hmm. I went and watched that. I'm not sure if you watched any of that yesterday. I watched, yeah, I had, it was breakfast with Tiger because because of the rain, they moved the, the leaders teed off at 9.20 a.m. Eastern, which is way ahead of when they tee off in a normal year so yeah sat there drank my coffee and watched the last round of the masters on sunday that was great um i so i really don't have a way to watch any of the slams so you have this this year tv thing that you can buy um but to be honest the couple times that i've bought it to watch a slam just the usability and the quality from the year tv product to me is just not worth the money i think the with the price point that they have to get access to the slams in the U S the, the product should be a lot better. It should be easier to, to cast it to a TV. It should be more usually user-friendly on mobile and it just frankly isn't. And I don't think there, like for instance, there's not really an app that you can download. That's a, a native app that makes it easier to watch. You have to watch it on mobile web and quite often, quite frankly, it's a disaster trying to watch it on mobile web. Um, when I've tried, so I don't really watch the slams and at, it was funny at triangle, they had the big drop down screen where we had our PowerPoint that for our, uh, instructor class on Saturday. And then they've got four T four other TVs that either have a feed of what's going on on the sheet or they've got, um, 
they or they can show uh, cable. And they had the slam up on one of the screens and then realized that we were all watching uh, whatever the game was and turned it off so that we could so that we had to pay attention to the, to the presentation that was going on. So I saw exactly zero of any of the Grand Slam. Yeah, I, d- I just read the highlights on uh, on social media. So and to be honest, the, like there's other podcasts out there that I think I say like, our friends on Game of Stones, they, they did kind of a mid slam episode unless they posted a few days ago I listened to that this afternoon it was really good and I th- I'm sure they'll have one kind of full rundown uh out either today or tomorrow and uh, two girls in a game of course always do a full rundown so we'll, we'll kind of plug those two podcasts as your place to go to for slam coverage I that and two girls in a game were there so they've got a, I think they have a bunch of interviews lined up um yeah that, I'm, that I'll listen to as soon as I have a chance yeah, and I think, like you point out, it's actually hard if you're not in Canada to watch the slams. I, I will neither confirm or deny that I have ways of doing that when the schedule <laughs> schedule works, but there's there's no le- there's very few legal ways to watch the slams, let's put it that way. So uh, we're probably not going to be a slam-focused podcast for that reason. No, uh, now we'll see next year. Hopefully they'll make some changes to the way that they have that available. Um, and I think that if they're going to ask for the price point that they do, that they should make it easier. Um, and it's weird, you know, a lot of times the slam weekends for whatever reason, especially this year, just have fallen on weekends that I have other stuff going on, but it would have been nice to have watched the players. Cause that's, I mean, that's going to be the best slam field of the year. I mean, maybe I'm not sure. It's kind of interesting. So they were talking about this on Game of Stones, and so for me, I'm a traditionalist. So I like the season of champion stuff. And actually, for me, the the players' championship because it goes back to the '90s. They, that was like when they were first setting up the World Curling Tour. They used to have that on TV uh, before even the Slam concept existed. So to me, it's like the oldest of the Slams has got actual history and tradition. And like you know, the Wrench used to play at the Slam finals and stuff. So I kind of like it as an event. But I think the Champions Cup might be the stronger field because you have to win an event to qualify for it. So it's not it's not really clear what's the kind of season ender. Like historically, I'd say it's the players the players championship, but now it's I guess the Champions Cup because it comes afterwards and you have to win an event to get into that. It's kind of seen as the actual closer. And now the WCF is getting in the game and they have their own season closer that I believe. I'm not even, and I'm not even a hundred percent sure. Isn't there some like crazy event going on in Siberia even after the curling World Cup finale? Uh, maybe the, there's was that the one that like a whole bunch of random teams went to last year? Like Jen Jones went, but not with her team, and <laughs> I can't. It was like some weird combo of people. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a bit like the season does drag on now. I think the there's got to be a little bit better thought in the future to. To how they lay out the schedule, because to be honest, for me, once the Worlds is done, maybe have the attention span for one more event, but it feels like we've got like five or six more. And honestly, once the calendar hits May, I'm on to other things. I'm sure that's the case for most curlers. So, mm-hmm. and I think the other thing is, as we will talk about here shortly, is now you have to throw mixed doubles into the equation. And I, I was thinking about this the other day, Jonathan. As we get into, I mean, the, what the mixed doubles championship starts on Saturday, I believe. At, at some point, will we see more teams go to five person teams because of how much of the schedule mixed doubles demands? Because I believe in Canada, they have certain rules where if, if you, you have to play a certain number of events if you're in the national team program in Canada. And I'm sure the high performance program in the U S has the same thing. Like, will we eventually see a lot of five person teams because of the demands of mixed doubles? I mean, I hadn't thought of that. I, uh, I'm wondering if what eventually happens is you just have full on specialists as in just pairs of people spend their whole season doing mixed doubles events. But yeah, it could be that you have five person teams. If you have a player on that team or two players on that team that want to do mixed doubles on top of it. 
And we started to kind of see what you said. I mean, John Morris is te- technically just a mixed doubles player now, uh, and he's he's kind of started the trend. But yeah, I think the and there's a lot of changes coming to this team uh, this off season. But the Jamie Sinclair team, I believe, one of the reasons that they were a five person team was how much mixed double Sarah Anderson plays. So I think it's going to come, you know, I think eventually we get to the point where we'll have enough competitive curlers who want to focus on mixed doubles. that it'll be a lot, there'll be a lot more specialization, but for now it may go the opposite end of the spectrum where you need more, you need an additional player because of how often someone's not going to be available. Yeah, I can see it playing out both ways or some combination of the two. I think, to be honest, nobody really knows how it's all going to play out. Speaking of the Mixed Doubles World Championship, we have an interview that you were nice enough to do with Anna Fowler from Team Fowler that will be competing for England in this week, this upcoming championship. Um also, they're, they are Team England because they beat you. Is that right? They did beat me. Thanks for reminding me of that, Ryan. I try, to remind, you, <laughs> I try to remind you of your failures as often as I can. You're just like Felix Price. Well, good. <laughs> I think I would get along with Felix. I'm sure you two will. But yeah, so they're Team England, and that brings up the fact that there's a lot of teams in this field. In fact, there's 48 of them. There are. And I just went to scroll through it this afternoon. And there are some countries that I did not know curled. And I, I spent a lot of time in the B and the C pools. <laughs> and so <laughs> we've got Guyana. We've got Greece. We've got Kosovo. Saudi Arabia. Nigeria is the first, I guess, sub-Saharan African team. Qatar. And we need, I need one of the Team Nigeria t-shirts that have Broomzilla on it. If anyone, uh, if anyone manages to snag one of those, I'll pay a nice bounty for, for one of those t-shirts. I think we're on football or soccer, as you call it. Um, the Nigerian Super Eagles kit is always very fly. It's always at like the best uniforms, I'd say, at the World Cup. So oh, it was sure. far and away... Far and away the best one at this last World Cup, and I think Nike sold out of them in like 24 hours when they unveiled the the Super Eagle kits for, for this last World Cup. Yeah, so I, I expect nothing less from the Nigerian Curling Federation to carry on the, the fine uniform tradition there. You have Team Mexico, who I believe, I believe those two curlers, because I saw on the <laughs> on the Arena Curling Club's uh, Facebook group that I'm a part of. They were selling t-shirts to kind of help fund their way to, to get to Norway for these championships. I believe those two curl out of, I think, San Francisco. Okay, that makes sense. I think. A little California collection? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but I think at least one of them is from San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club. Yeah, we've got, who else? I have I mentioned Qatar, Saudi Arabia. Chinese Taipei, which is actually Taiwan, but for political reasons, has to enter international sporting events as Chinese Taipei. And Romania. Romania. Wales. Wales. Is, is Adrian Miko playing for Wales? No, it's Laura Beaver and Gary Coombs this year. All right. So, yeah, a lot of teams. I think the, the other little wrinkle, and we get into this a bit in the interview with Anna, is... This is going to be the last year of basically any federation being able to sign up and play in the main World Mixed Doubles event. So the top 16 teams out of this year's event, so basically you have to make the playoffs, will go into what will probably be called the World Mixed Doubles Championship or World Mixed Doubles A. All the other countries will be relegated into a B pool. And then I believe four teams from next year's B pool will then qualify for next year's A pool and four will be relegated back. So that's um, that's one wrinkle. And then wrinkle number two is you need to be in that A pool next year because next year they start handing out Olympic qualification points. So there'll be yep. 10 teams at the, at the next Olympics in mixed doubles. So a bit of a growth from the eight teams at the last Olympics. One spot goes to China. So... Of those 16 to 20 teams next year, 
only nine of those countries will be able to qualify for the Olympics eventually. So it's going to be a real battle for Olympic points in the mixed doubles with, you have 48 countries entered and only nine can go. Are they going to have an Olympic qualification event for mixed doubles like they did for men's and women's? Yeah, there'll be a last chance spiel. So I assume that means there'll be two out of the last chance spiel, whatever they call it, the Olympic qualification event. So really seven teams out of those 20 will be qualifying. And so one of the reasons the mixed doubles has become an Olympic level event is to kind of promote the growth of the sport. And then you look at the countries that made it last time around, I believe what Finland was the only country that sent only a mixed doubles team to, to, la- to last year's Olympics. Yeah, I think so. And it's also, we, we've seen, we've seen Hungary win this twice. So we've, we've seen a non-traditional country capture the mixed doubles title. So it is, it's helped, it's helped grow the sport, obviously as 48 teams are, are in this event, but is it, is it helping grow the sport at the top level? You had these countries that maybe don't have enough depth to put together a good enough four person team. I mean, are, are we, are I mean, Hungary was not able to make the Olympics last time around. What are we, is any team going to come kind of from out of nowhere to, to possibly qualify for 20, 2022? Uh, I'm not convinced. So I think there's a couple, there's a couple of big issues with mixed doubles and we got to get into it a little bit in the interview, but, but one big issue I think is going forward, you're going to need to have kind of a full-on training and coaching program in order to put out a team that can qualify for the Olympics, which probably means your your federation has to have enough money to hire a kind of a top-level head coach. You have to have access to really good training facility, and you have to have the money to basically go out and, and play mixed doubles at kind of a competitive level. I think my hunch is that Canada will be looked back at – Canada's gold medal will be looked back as the aberration where – Basically, John Morris and Caitlin Laws came in and out-executed everybody. It's not that they were kind of totally naive when they came to mixed doubles, but they're, they're just you've got two of the best shooters kind of in the history of the game playing together, and they can be dropped into a tournament, and they were shooting they were shooting 85%, whereas most of the other best teams in the mixed doubles were shooting high, high to mid-70s. So they were getting a shot or two a game apiece, and that was kind of the difference in how they were able to win. I don't think long-term that's a sustainable formula. And so I think that the countries that invest in mixed double specialization, so as we're going to find in this interview, Team GB or Scotland and England are one of them, but other countries like Russia kind of put out mixed double specialists. Um, Switzerland certainly does. I think those will be the countries that will be favorites kind of for the podium and certainly to qualify. One thing I noticed looking at this team's list is maybe this year, more so than previous years, there's a lot of familiar faces in this field, including the two Olympic gold medal winning skips, uh, John Schuster playing with Corey Christensen out of the U.S. and Anna Hasselberg playing with Oscar Eriksson representing Sweden. And then beyond that, um, looking at uh, Team Japan, Satsuki Fujisawa, who won a medal at at last year's Olympics is also in this field. Other than the names that, that jump out, what are some of the other countries that you think that, that we should focus on? I would say Switzerland's kind of been a perpetual kind of medalist in these events. Although uh, Marty Rios and Jenny Perret did not qualify this year, but the Swiss are kind of a deep country. And we see that in the women's side too, that they're able to field multiple teams that are capable of making the podium. And it's no different in mixed doubles. Uh, Russia has a dedicated mixed doubles program. And so they're normally kind of good for a medal threat. And Norway, I think, actually, because uh, Kristen Skaslian and Magnus Nedrogatin have kind of had a really good year on the mixed doubles tour and did really well at the Curling World Cup. So uh, I think that'll be a definite podium threat as well. Yeah, and we've seen Skaslian and Nedrogatin, and I believe. Moskaleva and Aramine at the Curling World Cup. And we've seen Skaslian and Nedrogatin actually win one of those legs of the World Cup. I believe we'll see them at this grand final coming up in May. And then Jonathan, looking at 
the teams list, some of the names that jump out to me beyond some of the household names people might be familiar with are uh, Team Hungary and Team Estonia. I mean, those are those are good curlers on those teams, and those are curlers that have done well at specific mixed doubles events that I think might be able to to play themselves into medal contention. Yeah, I mean, Hungary, well, Hungary, so the Hungarian team, if you go look at the order of merit for the mixed doubles world curling tour, and yes, there is such a thing now, uh, are actually fifth on the season. The Russian team is fourth on the season. The Scottish team, the Gina Aiken, Scott Andrews, is third on the season. Play uh, and Rios are the top ranked team, but they didn't qualify. Oh, the team that did qualify is ranked 11th overall. So these are all kind of elite teams. The Estonian team is uh, currently ranked 16th, uh, the Mary Sherman Harry Little team. So they're kind of a good, they're always, they have a lot of mixed doubles experience as well at these events. So they're all kind of good teams to watch out for. Uh, Hungary, I think, I think Hungary is kind of an interesting story because they're not a traditional curling power. And I think part of why the WCF in particular likes mixed doubles is it's actually quite easy for a country to develop a national program because you only need two people. In a lot of these emerging countries, it's often, you'd be surprised, but it often is extremely hard to even throw together a four-person team. So a two-person team is often a lot easier in order to get a country's national program going. And Hungary really built up this mixed doubles program first, and then from there has built up things like juniors and men's and women's national teams afterwards. So... Hungary's kind of shown the path, and I think a lot of other countries, especially in Europe, have kind of started to follow that path as a way to kind of climb up the world rankings and try to qualify for the Olympics that way. And finally, Team Canada. Canada will be represented by Jocelyn Peterman and Brett Gallant, who recently won that national championship. Obviously, those two are from two of the better teams in in four-person curling. Do you, th- you know, Canada does this a little bit differently than most other nations you see, you know, with Japan and Canada and the U S they're not really specializing and also with Sweden, is there an advantage to specializing in this event or is it really, is it, are we still at the point where it's a race to the button and it's really um, shot making? Um, It's a, it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, um, so having played the Fowlers, <laughs> I've got to get confessional now. So Lisa and I spent a lot of time talking about this, right? And Lisa is a really good shooter uh, and kind of I was lucky to play with a, a player of that caliber. And we just said our approach to this is going to have to be an execution type bond spiel for us. We're just going to have to outshoot our opponents. We had to learn some of the nuances as we played our way through the tournament, to be honest. Um we lost the game simply because we didn't see a double that we left our opponent. Like that's that's one of the tricks with mixed doubles is there's so many rocks in play, there's so many angles that you can actually just miss something pretty obvious. So we we just left an easy. Well, I wouldn't say an easy double. We made it left a make up double, and we we didn't even see it until our opponent called it. So that's part of the nuance. I think we, we learned pretty quickly on that. Whereas in traditional curling. I think Lisa and I are both of the philosophy that you kind of try to build an end. You don't necessarily have to be holding shot rock early in an end. In fact, it can be quite advantageous to not hold shot rock and kind of set your stones up in good position. Uh, in mixed doubles, if you're not shot or have a very easy shot to get shot, you're in trouble really quickly. That's part of it. And then there's a lot of nuance in terms of when you sweep, when you have a person in the head calling a line. Um, and kind of learning some of the nuances of throwing a stone, hopping up, sweeping, and kind of catching up with the stone, which kind of has its own tricks to it too. So I think all of those things add a bit of nuance. And when you're talking about kind of elite level curling, having people who are specialized in those skills over time are probably going to get the advantage when it's when, when everything else being equal, so to speak. Canada's kind of in an interesting bind where the mixed doubles game isn't really all that popular yet. And they don't really have many teams yet that are mixed doubles specialists first. So Canada's bet was they would try to persuade their best shooters to kind of pick up mixed doubles on the side. It paid off last cycle. I'm not convinced it's going to pay off next cycle, though. All right, so getting back to the championship, it's going to be pool play. 
In fact, there's six pools. The U.S. is in a group with Spain, Greece, Kosovo, Latvia, Poland, Russia, and Slovenia. So they are in a group with probably one of the favorites in Russia. Good news, um, and it also speaks to the growth of mixed doubles, is a lot of their games are going to be live on Olympic Channel, and it looks like a few of them are even going to be available on NBC Sports Network. So you'll be able to follow Team USA as they try to bring home medal from the Mixed Doubles Championship, and I assume TSN will be airing games as well as Canada. Actually in probably the toughest group in this field, uh, their pool includes Japan and Sweden, as well as Belarus, Denmark, Hong Kong, Romania, and the Ukraine. So being in a group with Japan and Sweden, I mean, there's a, there's a remarkable amount of curling talent in that pool, considering that there's, there's 48 teams in this event. Yeah, and so it'll be seeded off, and that, that's actually tough for Canada, right? Because only three teams get out of that pool, and you you have to get out of that pool in order to have any chance of qualifying for your next year's World Championship. So that'll actually be a little bit of an interesting week there. Although I can't imagine Canada, even if they somehow got relegated to the the B group next year, wouldn't make it out of the B group next year. Maybe not, but you, you've got to then figure out what kind of team you're going to send to the B group. That's an extra week you're going to burn with some elite players going there. And especially in a year which actually does start to count for things like um, CTRS points in Canada and Olympic qualification points. It would be kind of a bit of trouble for Canada there. So it's, it, I mean, I'd, I'd be surprised they didn't get out of the group because they've got a good team. But um, as you said, Japan and Sweden are going to be tough. And then countries like Denmark uh, is, could, could be a kind of potential banana peels we've seen in the past. So, uh, you, you know, it depends on, and, and the thing with mixed doubles is, to be honest, it's a bit more random in terms of the outcome. Oh, yeah, it's a random number generator. Yeah, it's, you know, giving up a five. <laughs> you can give up a five very easily. You give up a five and win the game very easily, which is not going to happen in traditional curling at this level. But certainly, kind of in mixed doubles, you can give up a five-bagger and still have a chance to win. Yeah, I think we saw that, we saw that when Skaslian and Nedragotten won their uh, World Cup leg. They were down 5 nothing after the first end to Pere and Rios, and Pere and Rios I don't think scored again the rest, of that, the rest of that game. Yeah, if you can get someone, if you can kind of get your stones locked in end after end and get steel, you can steal and get kind of in a steel roll thing, it, it, you can definitely do that. So, you, you know, it's random enough that if I was Jeff Stout in charge of mixed doubles, I would I will not be breathing easily until Canis through the group phase. And I guess that, that gets to the last point before we get into your interview with Anna. She and Ben are mixed doubles specialists. The other way that that kind of maybe becomes advantageous is, you know, we're getting to the point where we have fixture congestion. Uh, we've kind of talked about that before, but there's with, with the curling world cup and the slams, and now you throw in mixed doubles, you know, there's not a lot of downtime for these teams and it's go, go, go. And the question is, how do you fit mixed doubles into your schedule if you're someone trying to do both? Yeah, and I'll be curious how many of these teams, like I'll be curious about, uh, you know, whether the Hasselbergs and the Schusters are doing mixed doubles throughout the cycle or is this the case they kind of jumped into the national championships because it was an open week and happened to win and then they're obviously going to take a chance to go to a world world championship when it provides itself or um are there going to be teams are there going to be people like dropkin and anderson who eventually say look our best path to the olympics in 2022 is mixed doubles so they decide to put their energies into that and kind of back off the the traditional curling for the rest of the cycle yeah it's a it's a new landscape with a new Olympic program and a new way to, to get to the Olympics in curling. So that it's going to, I think it's going to be an ever evolving thing. And I think that this particular quad is, I, I think as we get to the end of this quad, we'll start seeing the way curling may mi 
weave mixed doubles into into its standard schedule. I think we'll have it figured out by the end of this quad, and then we'll have something kind of standardized as to what teams are going to do going forward once we start looking at 2026. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm curious what will happen. I, I, I'm wondering if at some point we end up seeing mixed doubles out of the Grand Slam of curling. Or juniors. There's no mixed doubles junior program that I'm aware of. I'd be interested to see how soon that happens. I know, I think, I think I saw where Curling Canada did kind of a, a mixed doubles championship ish thing when they had the Canadian juniors this last time around, but it wasn't, I, I don't, I don't know the way they did. It was kind of odd. It's kind of, it was kind of thrown together. It seemed like. Yeah, so it, it's true. They do have a bit of so there is this thing called the Youth Olympic Games where they actually send mixed teams and then break them up into mixed doubles teams with people from other countries uh, that are eliminated early on, and that's partly to try to sell mixed doubles by the WCF to some of the up and coming juniors. But there's not really many opportunities for juniors to try mixed doubles. So that's kind of an interesting question there is will they actually eventually develop a mixed doubles junior championship? Will there be, there is now a cash spiel circuit. So, and it's kind of tracked by the world curling mm-hmm. tour, but will there be elite levels, mixed doubles events? There was a big, big bond spiel that John Morris hosted out in, I think in Canmore, Alberta, uh, kind of back in January. And that was clearly an attempt to make it an event that's appealing to both the kind of slam quality teams as well as a lot of the elite mixed doubles teams in the world. And it's interesting to see. I think it's, I think that what's interesting, especially with John Morris is he's clearly this year taken on the role of being the ambassador for the mixed doubles format that he hasn't opted to go back to men's curling. I wouldn't say he's really gunning for it in mixed doubles anymore, but he's certainly been playing a schedule, changing up his partners a lot, but also kind of trying to use his profile to, build the profile of that discipline, if you will. Well, as far as the world championship goes, I mean, mixed doubles is just such a crapshoot. I don't think it's actually worth it to make a pick, but I'll, uh, I'll give a team to watch and I'll say, I'll say team Estonia. That's my, that's my team to watch is kind of a, a country that may be a curling outsider that I think might surprise some people at this tournament. Yeah, I will, I'll plug the flowers because obviously I've got to back the England program <laughs> being involved in it. I mean, I think as we as we in this interview, their goal is clearly to qualify top 16. I think they've got a good shot at that. And once you're in the knockout phase, anything can happen. I think in terms of favorites, I'm going to go with Norway as kind of my pick to, to win it all this year. All right. If you're, if you're going to make me take it, uh, I'll take Russia. I'll take Russia as my winner. All right. That's a good pick too, I'd say. All right. So let's get on to your interview with Anna Fowler. And again, we thank Anna for taking the time to talk with talk with Jonathan and talk with the podcast. And uh, she'll give you a lot more insight into this event and into preparing for a a international level mixed doubles uh, competition. So, so here is Jonathan along with Anna Fowler from Team England. So I'm joined today by Anna Fowler, who's one half of the Team England Mixed Doubles squad. She's also a member of Team GB squad. Uh, She's represented England many times in international competitions. So she skipped the England women's team in 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016 at the European Curling Championships. Uh, She also played on the England squad in 2011. Her brother, Ben, who is the other part of the other kind of her partner on the team, uh, played on the England men's team in 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2017. Together, they've been playing mixed doubles for the last seven years. They're currently ranked at least 14th on the World Curling Tour mixed double standings. They finished eighth at the 2016 World Mixed Doubles Championship, and they've represented England in mixed doubles at 20, in, during 2012, 2015, 2016, 2017. And, and uh, Anna played last year with Tom Yegi while Ben was uh, finishing his university studies. So Anna's joining me today to talk a little bit about mixed doubles in advance of the World Mixed Doubles Championship and a little bit about her kind of history in the game and her background. So Anna, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. 
Yeah, and thanks for coming on. So let's begin with how you be how you got into curling. So uh, the story around the rink is that you and your family showed up the first day the rink opened, and that's when you tried curling for the first time. Is that true? Exactly. Yeah, more more or less one of the first um, open days I think that they had, which was just after the 2004 Winter Olympics, where um, Team GB won the gold medal in the women's, um, and our mum just brought both. Um, ben and I and also our older brother to the to the rink in um, Fenton's in Kent and we um, started playing there in the sort of um, beginners sessions and then uh, moved on into the junior leagues or the junior clubs after that. And then when did you start playing so did you start you said you started joining this junior club so what was junior curling like in England when you started? Um, to be honest, it's such a long time ago now. I don't remember too much about it, but, um, you know, there wasn't that many players. I, I don't think it was, um, run by John Brown, who is, has been the secretary of the, oh, sorry, the competitions convener and president of the ECA over the, uh, you know, after the past number of years. Um, and also Stephen Hines, who has played a lot of curling in England. So I remember them both coaching us. Um, but in general, you know, it was a very sort of the beginnings of um, curling in England. So um, there wasn't much expertise in the junior um, ranks. We just had sort of um, more experienced curlers sort of from Scotland or Canada, you know, expats to learn from. And so did you you just kind of put together a team and enter as the England junior team to to go play in the European Junior Curling Championship? Or how did you get kind of into the more competitive side of the game? Yeah, exactly. So we'd played for maybe um, two or three years. And, you know, the the coaches said, well, England don't have a juniors team. Do you want to put a team in? So it was a case of grabbing four females I think there might have been five of us and um, grabbing five females who played who were under the age of 21 and um, putting in a team and we got absolutely thrashed the first two years we played in juniors um, which was well not that good but also obviously caused some kind of bug in us I guess um, to keep on playing and try to get better and I think with Ben he um, didn't have a sort of team of four boys until a little little bit later Um, but yeah as junior women we we played I think I played four four juniors um, and it was really encouraging to see that actually after I aged out the team that I'd played with for years then went on to go to the world championships which was um you know a real testament to the sort of progression in English curling over that sort of period and so when you aged out what made you decide to keep with kind of the competitive side of the game and how did you form a competitive women's team so I mean I I played with um Hetty Garnier and Naomi Robinson and Lauren Pierce pretty much from the beginning and actually we just genuinely really enjoyed playing together um and we knew that we had a a good sort of team and were able to you know keep continuing to get better so we wanted to play women's because that was you know a natural progression for us um so we entered the English championships I don't think we won the first year we entered but we did win the second year um and then went off to um Stavanger actually for the um European women's well, the European Championships in the B group and actually medaled in the B group in our first year, um, which, again, was a real, um, you know, it, it sort of encourages to, you to keep playing when you perform well, I guess. Yeah. And so then when did you try mixed doubles for the first time? So I actually used to play mixed doubles. I, I couldn't tell you what year I started playing, but we're back in the old rules. And I actually played with my old older brother, Sam, uh, first of all. And we entered the English Championships a few times. Um, and in the end, um, I was playing again with an, another partner and, and not with Ben. And then Ben won the English Championships in 2012. Um, and I went as a, a substitute almost um, to the Championships with him. And that sort of started off our mixed doubles career together, I guess. So what did you like about the mixed doubles format as opposed to the more traditional four-person format of the game? 
I there's a lot I really love about the format. Uh, first thing is that it's actually really short. Um, I sometimes find ten ends can be a, a real drag, especially when there's a lot of blank ends involved. Um, and you know, instead of playing for three hours at a time, you're playing you know an hour and a half, an hour and forty five minutes. Um, and there's just so many stones in play, so you have to be a really tactical player. It's you know precision shots. And you also get a say in a lot of different aspects of it. So although you specialize in your position, as you would do in the four person game, you get to be involved and have ownership for a, probably a lot more than you you would, um, you know, in the four person game. And that's what I really, really like about it. So how do you find the strategy different with mixed doubles? So it's a lot more aggressive. Obviously, there's two stones placed already, um, whereas you don't have any stones placed in, in four-person curling. Um, and so immediately it sort of drags play down into the into the forefoot area. And so, you know, you'd call a freeze on a, on a regular basis as a normal shot, whereas that would probably be seen as potentially a little bit more risky in a four-person game. So you, you do have a lot more precision shots and you probably take a little bit more risk as well um, because you know that anything can happen. You know, having the hammer or sorry, not having the hammer in the first end um, does not mean that you will lose the game or have a high chance of losing the game like it would be in men's curling, for example. Um, and I really like that about yeah. it. Yeah, so I've got a, I got a question for you. I haven't played as much as you, obviously, but uh, when we were playing in the English Championships this year, I think one of the things we noticed uh, early on was that you really have to get shot right away, whereas under conventional curling, you often try to build up an end and may kind of ignore shot rock, but it almost feels like there's a race for shot. Do you, do you find that kind of in your experience that's true as well? or? Yeah, I guess so. Obviously, um if you're if you don't have the hammer and you're trying to do a steal or a force end, you know, playing right down onto the back back of the the or onto the front of the play stone is um a good shot for trying to shrink the scoring area and giving your opposition a hard time. Um and then if you obviously do have hammer, you want to try and create a bit more space so you've got an you know, an option to score more than one with the hammer um but yeah I mean you'd have a lot less stones I guess so you kind of need to get to the point a little bit quicker rather than in you know in um four person curling eight stones it take you you need to go a little bit more of a roundabout way to get to the end goal I guess yeah and so the other thing that came up is I remember right when we were done with the final J John Brown who uh, for anyone who's not in English curling, he's kind of the, I call him the godfather of English curling because he, he knows everything, follows all the stats. He, he came up to me right after the game and said, you know, you two were the only team who didn't, uh, talking about us, our partnership, we're the only team who didn't use the power play all weekend. Why is that? And quite frankly, we didn't really understand the power play, so we just decided to set it aside unless we needed the last end. But the power play is probably the, well, it's the, the newest addition to mixed doubles. And so... How do you see it being used more as an offensive option or as a defensive option, primarily at the competitive level? Um, a little bit of both, I guess. Probably more offensive um, in terms of you know it's getting towards the end of the game. The chances are you know most teams will score two on their power play. So if you know that you have a strategy that might give you a chance to get a three, then that can really kill off a game. Um, also, if you've got, um, say, you know, you're, you're quite far ahead in the game, you can use it a little bit earlier and try and kill the game off if you know that you've, you know, got, got the line around the corner guards and you might be able to score a couple or, you know, three and it's kind of guaranteed. It could also be quite a helpful thing in the last end because you don't have a centre guard in play. Therefore, you know, you're more likely to be able to score a one if it's just a one that you need with the hammer. So um, it's kind of set up for you. Or perhaps if you need a two with hammer, you've already got one placed and guarded. So I think a, a little bit of both, but probably more offensively. But it definitely adds a new dimension to the game when you know that you've got your power play to come. And you know that if you were pra practicing a lot of different strategies to um, defend defend it well to make sure your, your opposition only scores a one, for example, it can be a really 
um, good weapon and something that sort of separates separates the teams. Yeah, and so have you noticed, um, or at least I've noticed, and I'm wondering what your thought is because you're, you're on tour here, is that since the Olympics last year, it seems like a lot more um, what I'd call elite four-person players. So I'm thinking here of people like John Schuster, Anna Hasselberg, Pujisawa, have entered mixed doubles um, and the, the mixed doubles world championship uh, with the intention of winning. So do you think there's been a big shift since the Olympics last year in terms of the caliber of players entering and how many people are pursuing the mixed doubles at the at the kind of competitive world level? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously with um, Johnny Morrison and Caitlin Laws, not necessarily mixed doubles specialist players, but actually going to the Olympics and, and winning was quite a good message to a lot of other, you know, teams and players that this is another Olympic gold medal that is up for grabs. So, you know, wh why would you not have, have a go? I guess it's positive. It's definitely positive for the discipline because it means that it's getting a little bit more attention and it's kind of bringing the, the quality of the play up as well. Um, and I guess if you've got players who are able to shoot 80, 90 percent consistently, um, you know, however good your tactics are, you're probably going to be putting yourself in a pretty good position to win games. Um, so, yeah, it's def definitely um, I think it's really positive to see, you know, all these different players adopting the discipline. Um, but I also think that there is definitely an argument for sort of mixed doubles specialism. And we're seeing that from for example, Johnny Morris in Canada. Um, and I'm sure we'll see it come a little bit more as well going forwards. Yeah, so what do you think the advantages are? Because you and Ben, this year at least, have focused entirely on mixed doubles, doing the mixed doubles tour, kind of gearing up for the World Championship that way. But And that seems to be, in general, the Team GB strategy that the two Scottish teams in the program also uh, are focusing entirely on mixed doubles. But a lot of other countries seem to have gone with what I call the Canadian strategy, which is kind of grab top players in the four-person game and then drop them into mixed doubles late in the season. So what do you think the advantages are of focusing solely on mixed doubles for a season? So I think there are a lot of advantages, um, like as in four-person curling, um, you do specialise in your position and in the different types of shots that you have to play. Um, and I think that there's an argument for, you know, that being really advantageous. Um, and also, I think strategy wise, obviously, the more times you see a situation and play it out, you know, the more experienced you're going to be at kind of executing that in big competitions. So I, I do think that there are, you know, clear advantages of having mixed doubles players, who, you know, who focus solely on mixed doubles. But I, you know, it's the same, comes back to the same argument, even if you make all the right decisions, but don't, you know, you're, you're only playing 65%, 70%, for example, and you're shooting against, you know, 80, 90, you're probably not going to win the game. So, you know, you, you still have to have, you know, world class players. Um, but with that sort of, uh, you know, edge in terms of, ta you know, tactical ability, I think that that is really important as well. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, you're part of the Team GB squad this year, and that's a little bit of history from English curling perspective as well. So for people listening to the podcast who aren't from Great Britain, right, there's four countries in Britain and uh, three kind of field curling teams, England, Wales, and Scotland, and traditionally they've been each representing themselves as a country independently in, in curling, but for the Olympics, everything falls under the kind of curling, the British curling umbrella, so you and Ben are actually kind of historic figures because you're the first two English curlers to ever be selected on to the British curling squad. So what steps do you have to take along the way in order to be part of being selected for Team GB? I guess it's a little bit of a difficult one because um, in Scotland, you know, there's a, re a, you know, a really big push on development of young curlers and you know there's a lot more resources available to get them up to sort of elite standard whereas in England we don't really have that set up or you know we don't even really have enough facilities to have that set up and so it is difficult to compete um, 
And, you know, we've made a, a lot of sacrifices along the way financially and sort of time wise and with work and you know decisions about where we've gone to university and lots of different things. So it is a lot harder and it is a lot more of a, you know, a s- steep mountain. But I guess at the end of the day, when you've sacrificed a lot and, you know, put a lot in, you you do kind of reap the rewards and it, it feels a lot better. So in terms of actually, you know, getting to the point where we we're able to be selected we you know just kept plugging away I guess and trying to get results on tour and at the world championships to make sure that we were um, able to compete with um, our Scottish counterparts. And so what does it mean to be part of the British curling squad during a non-Olympic year what what is what are the objectives that you have as a team what kind of support do you have from British curling Uh, what's your training regiment like? So, I mean, I guess we don't know what it's like in a, an Olympic year yet. Um, so, I mean, I guess the focus really is making sure that we hit top 16 at the World Championship. So we need to qualify out of our group. And that's because the um, format is changing next year. At the moment, the Mixed Doubles World Championships is an open championship. So any anybody can enter, or any country can enter, I should say. Um which has its advantages and disadvantages. The advantages are obviously that you get to play lots of um, teams that you wouldn't normally get to play, but it also means that the the um, level of play is quite varied. So you could be playing quite um, an amateur team, you know, one day and the next day we could have an Olympic standard game. Um, so that's obviously the objective. Um, sorry, wait, the they're splitting it up into two groups next year to make sure that you know that you have um, an A and a B group so we have to be top 16 to qualify for that. Um, In terms of what that means you know in our training regimen we are playing pretty much every day that we're um, at home and not on tour and obviously have our strength and conditioning programs as well um, to put us in the best possible position to be able to get top 16 and qualify out of our group at world championships so and again just keeping in mind there's a lot of people who don't uh, who listen to the podcast who aren't familiar with uh, kind of british curling so what's the process in great britain for selecting the olympic team and specifically how will the mixed double squad be decided uh, has it been kind of explained to you what the process is what standards you need to hit so i think at the moment it's a little bit open in terms of you know how that selection would work because we're only in the first year after Olympics I think there's still a lot to be figured out and we also have this slightly unusual situation that um, we compete separately at world championships you know as England Scotland and Wales but then during Olympic um years well when we collect points for olympics at world championships scotland are the points earners so it's a little bit of a you know a, a difficult situation whereby we would be competing at, at world championships and would want to you know perform as well as possible and collect our own olympic points but we are actually you know ours would just be defunct and we would have to rely on scotland to get the points and then we would have to presumably compete for a place on well on the Olympic team so a little bit of an unusual situation um, and I guess they don't really know what it's going to look like now I'm not sure if there's any sort of selection policy or anything being released yet but um, I guess it will just be (laughs) remain to be seen how it kind of pans out over the next couple of years. Yeah, so let's turn out of the World Mixed Doubles Championship so you've mentioned kind of a couple of interesting features right so this year, I just went to count on the WCF webpage, and it looks like there's 48 teams signed up for this event, and every every kind of team from Canada to Nigeria, so the kind of you know one of the traditional curling powers and one of the newest curling countries on the map. So, what's the format going to be like? How are you broken up into pools? Is it some kind of a knockout format? Yep. So there's six pools of seven teams is that right does that add up to, <laughs> does that add up to 48 um so there's six teams of seven and then you would need to be top two to guarantee qualification to the last 16 and then the best placed third so four of the best placed third 
teams if that makes sense um that will bring it up to 16 so you would be ranked third if you're sorry if you're ranked third based on your win loss record then you would go up against the other six or other five and then you'd be eliminated potentially on draw shot so um it it could be quite a tough competition because you could essentially lose one game have a bad draw shot and and be out so um it is a, a little bit tougher probably than the last few years where we've had five groups which means that you qualify if you're third place and so you've mentioned before that at least one of your goals is to make that so top 16 so if you qualify for the playoffs then it sounds like you're qualified for next year's world mixed levels championship is that correct exactly that's right yeah and so then kind of beyond that, is a, is a single knockout uh, at the playoff stage then? or? Yep. So if you um, get out of the group, then you would be in the eighth final or last 16. And then it just goes quarterfinals, semifinals, gold medal game after that. Okay. And so so a couple of questions. Kind of, so one of the things I just want to get back to what you mentioned before. You, you mentioned that for the Olympics – Right. In order to qualify, in order for a country to qualify for the Olympics, they have to earn what are called Olympic qualification points. And Scotland is the point carrier for British curling or Team GB. So what happens if you end up playing Scotland in uh, a knockout game? Has that been discussed as a possible conflict or scenario or is that a problem that's uh, been thought about? I guess, you know, it's 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 always possible because, um, I mean, we it's possible that we could also be drawn in the same group um, even. So, I mean, I don't know what what the situation would be. It's always quite difficult because, um, you know, it's the old enemy. You always want to make sure that you perform well and it's always a good one to win. But I guess there is a slight conflict of interest there because, you know, even though you desperately want to win and and get ahead if it's in a knockout game it's quite frustrating because that means that's you know olympic points gone so uh, i mean we've not had any conversations about it but i guess that's always a scenario that could play out and yeah it would be quite a difficult situation i suppose although for this year there's not olympic qualification points it's simply the top 16 right Exactly. Yeah. So this year there's no Olympic points. So if we get Scotland, we'll make make sure we beat them. <laughs> because you're part of Team GB, you all you obviously play these Scottish teams a lot. And the Scottish representatives this year are Scott Andrew and Gina Aiken. So how well do you know them, and uh, what's it like training with them? Yes. Yeah, so we have sort of operated um, within a bit of a squad philosophy this season. So we would travel to all the tour events um, with both Gina and Scott and, and Jane and Fraser as well. And the other Scottish team on the programme. And we actually are roommates with um, both Scott and Gina. Well, I share with Gina and Ben shares with Scott. Um, and so we have spent a lot of time with them this season. And we also play each other in bounce games at the NCA, which is the training centre. Um, and so, yes, we, we've played with them a, a lot this season. Um, so it would be, um, you know, good to meet them in the final, at least. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully that works out. Um, I've got one more question. So uh, I think this well, this definitely got out because I was asked about it by Ben. <laughs> so uh, earlier in the season, uh, we had what's now since called the infamous haggis bet, where Ryan uh, bet me a haggis that, uh, well, we've, we had a bit of a dispute about what we bet the haggis about. But basically, he said, you can't beat the Fowlers. And I said, what do I get if I beat them? And then he said, uh, I'll eat a haggis was the initial bet. I'm not sure if you actually heard the clip. But then Ryan came back and said, well, you didn't beat them in the final, which is true. So I want to know from your perspective, should Ryan have to eat a haggis? Yes or no? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't think haggis is that bad. It's quite tasty. I'm actually a vegetarian, so I, I'd suggest he goes for the vegetarian version. But I think he should. Yeah. All right. Super. <laughs> so there you go, Ryan. Um, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Anna, and good luck at the Worlds next week. And uh, we'll be following you very closely. So uh, thank you very much. Goodbye. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. Well, at some point, I'm going to have to eat a haggis for this podcast. And when that happens, we'll try to get video of that as well. There's 
I've looked online trying to do this, and there's one or two places that you can actually get a haggis sent to you here in the USA, and because of some Scottish holiday, they were completely out of haggis back when we made this bet, but at some point, it's going to happen, and we'll get video, and we'll uh, post it to our social media accounts when that happens. Uh, you can find us uh, on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find us at Rocks Across the Pond there. We now have a website, and it's rocksacrossthepond.com, and you can find all of our shows there. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some other content that we can post there as well. Uh, Jonathan's always coming up with different coaching blog posts or uh, quick messaging that uh, will find their way there as well. Thank you so much for listening. Um, please remember to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever it is that you listen to the show. Uh, we thank everyone who uh, leaves a review. That uh, is what helps get this show found. Um, and the best thing that you can do for us is, if you enjoyed the show, to tell a friend. Those, you know, That's the number one compliment that we can receive is when you let someone else know that, uh, that they should listen. Uh, thank you again, everyone. Uh, if you want to tell us what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy, you can also email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. So enjoy the World Mixed Doubles Championship, and we will talk to you again real soon.